so I need to ask you all if you've ever been to a cocktail party with a doctor. I have. I married one. And let me tell you, perhaps the only thing more riveting than a party with a physician is when his minister wife tags along. Basically, every time we go out, there is a 90% chance that we are either going to hear about someone's irritating mole or someone's irritating pastor. Sometimes both. And honestly, the only thing that is unbearable about this is if we are talking with an irritating pastor about his irritating mole. Never mind the fact that Rob doesn't know anything about moles. He is a radiologist. Or that I clearly do not represent every pastor of every church in every denomination of all time. But folks, they have expectations and needs. If a person is sick, they seek a physician. Isn't that what the gospel says? If you want to understand just how good it must have felt for Jesus to float away from the crowds of the people who needed him, imagine a woman named Betty Becker. And she has you trapped in a corner at a cocktail party. And your husband, whom you used to trust, refuses to save you because selfishly he'd rather you talk about Jesus than subject himself to a deep dive into Betty's irritating mole. Now, Betty was like that little lady in the Poltergeist movie. She was like four foot seven. And she would pop up when you least expected her, attempting to draw you into the light with her little voice. She would say, now, Lori... I have had a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus for 30 years, and he is telling me that I should ask you if you have been saved. I panic to myself, where is Rob? Yes, ma'am. Thank you, I politely mumbled. I have. And when was that exactly? Oh, heaven help me. It was a cocktail party, which means I had had a cocktail, which meant that I would neither be polite enough nor silent enough. And I look up and I say, wait, is that Rob? Is he laughing at me? I mouth the words over Betty's tall hair, help me. And then I went back down into that fun party conversation on grace and salvation starting with, actually, yes, ma'am, I was saved a long time ago, 33 A.D., sort of. <laughs> so polite, so patient, at which point she promptly explained why my ordination was invalid according to the laws of Scripture, and by the way, women are commanded to support and obey our husbands, her words, not mine, now, it is true I know folks who may align their households or their theology a bit more with Betty. But Margaret Towner, the first female pastor in our denomination, was ordained 62 years ago. And clearly, God didn't plan on that being the end of it. According to recent data, there are actually more female seminarian grads than male in our denomination. 
but we do have plenty of work to do. Of all of our co- and senior pastorates, only 25% or so are held by women. And within our largest congregations of, say, more than 1,000 members, just less than 8% have employed a female head of staff. So polite or not, you may wonder how my conversation with Betty ended. But let me just say this. God bless Betty. In spite of herself, she expected God to show up. And she was committed to working through some things regarding her faith and her mole. And isn't that what we all do in one way or another? We expect God to show up. And I guess that night God was doing what God does too, confronting our narrow-minded rules and doctrines and assumptions about what it means to be faithful. And in Mark's gospel, not only do we find a huge crowd expecting Jesus, but at least two of them were in desperate need. And, well, we all know how this goes. First thing you or someone you love does after a cancer diagnosis is to Google the survival rates against your doctor's orders. And then you consider your options, create a health care plan of action, and stay the course in good faith. And if plan A doesn't work, then you adjust the expectations and you move to plan B. And if plan B doesn't work, then you shift your expectations and you move to plan C. And if plan C doesn't work, you drop to your knees in earnest hope and you pray for a miracle. And according to those survival rates and how our bodies respond, some of us die and some of us live until eventually we die too. But to claim that one is healed by God's miraculous touch while the other one is left to suffer points to a pretty maniacal God, doesn't it? So if we're honest, these healing stories of Jesus uncover a deep, hidden grave of doubt, doubt that is otherwise buried in logical common sense and good old-fashioned skepticism, Jesus actually releases a man from the possessive chains of demons and mental illness? Jesus rubs a salve of spit and mud on the eyes of a man who was blind and now he can see? A crippled man is walking the walk and now he's talking the talk. Ten lepers are leaping because Jesus healed them. And to top them all, our brother Lazarus stumbles out of the tomb, four days dead, looking a little worse for wear, but breathing. Are they metaphors? Is it hocus pocus? Maybe Jesus is a superhero. Here's what we know. For both Jairus and the woman, plan A, plan B, and plan C have all failed, and now they have two things in common. Number one, their profound need, and number two, their faith in Jesus' power to heal. Nothing reminds us of our humanity and God's divinity more than staring death in the face. So as much as Jesus' healings are intimate gifts of compassion, Moltman is right when he insists that together with the proclamation of the word, Jesus' healings and miracles are the most important testimony to the dawning of God's kingdom on earth. 
There is a deep and eternal truth that is far more profound than anything we can explain or prove or manipulate for our own personal gain. But it is so much easier to dismiss this truth than to face the fact that we need God to intercede in our lives, that we actually do not have it under control, and that we do not know it all, and that we actually do need help, and that come to find out we are not gods after all. Look, I don't blame Jairus. It's been 12 years of joy and prosperity for his family. His daughter wasn't quite a teenager, which means she was still sweet to her daddy. And now he was experiencing his worst nightmare. nightmare. Jairus would do anything to save her, and I don't know what parent who would not. Jairus, you see, he knew people. He was connected and respected. He was righteous and he was faithful. He knew how to navigate the crowd. He understood how the system worked. He had access. He was a leader. Sure, he benefited from the things worked out. But Jairus, he expected God to show up, to do what God has always done. Jairus had faith. And you know what his Instagram account looked like. It said, hashtag blessed. Hashtag blessed, not stressed. Hashtag blessed with the best. Hashtag blessed beyond belief. And so we ask ourselves, how can something like this happen to a guy like that? Makes no sense. He did everything right. You know that saying, let go and let God? Jairus didn't buy that for one second. He knew that neither silence nor politeness would get him what he needed. Scripture says that he implored Jesus. He didn't exactly beg him. He entreated Jesus. He instructed him. He called on Jesus with a specific purpose, in earnest, with power. Jairus dropped to his knees and he told Jesus the way that it was going to go. He said, I know you will, Jesus, because I know you can That is a bold prayer. And maybe we expect that from a guy like him. After all, it seems like Jairus' hope and God's will are lining up pretty good because Jesus and Jairus are on their way. Things are moving according to plan except for one huge problem. A lady without a name interrupts and steals Jesus' power right out from under him. Without permission or invitation, she sideswipes the edge of his cloak. She didn't ask. She didn't apologize. It says he felt the power leave his body. And I want to stop right here and tell that woman that not only is this interruption a bit impolite, but it's downright unladylike. Improper, really. Against the rules. I mean, all the rules. Now, every woman, especially from the South, knows exactly what I mean. And perhaps a few more men in Hollywood should consider this little rule. It is unacceptable to touch, much less take, that which does not belong to you. 
Now, my mom, who is here, has imparted many more life lessons than she has rules upon my sisters and I. But God bless her. She is the only reason I have any manners at all. According to her, if you walk through the China section at the belt department, belt department store, you have three choices. Number one, you can slide your hands right into your pockets. Number two, you can clasp your hands firmly behind your back. Or number three, she will stare at you like the devil is coming out of her eyeballs to burn your fingers off. Young ladies, keep your hands to yourselves, right? And I pass that little gym right along to my kids too, along with all these other very important rules. Wait your turn, don't talk back, ask permission, don't insert yourself where you do not belong, do not lose your temper, and always, always, always say please, thank you, yes ma'am, no sir. As a long distance runner, I about sent her over the edge today. I raced a big high school track meet and spit right on the track in front of all the spectators. When I got home that night, she says, Lori, was that really necessary? Now she has a point, it was very gross, but a girl has to do what a girl has to do. And as Professor Emerson Powery puts it, this woman in the crowd is downright bodacious. There is not a rule she didn't break in her brave pursuit of Jesus. And let's be honest, ladies, based on who wrote the rules, that's what it takes sometimes. Everyone knows you typically don't provoke change or gain access or build power by asking permission or being polite or keeping silent or waiting patiently. Jairus knew that. And so she does not touch Jesus' cloak because she's greedy or sneaky or dishonest. No, she's desperate. Just like Jairus, she would do anything, anything for wholeness and healing and restoration. It was Moltmann who quipped that healing is more than the restored function of an organ. Healing of the body leads to healing of the soul. And healing of the soul sometimes leads to healing of the body. And you can ask anybody that's in recovery or anyone that's suffering from a long-time injury or illness Anyone navigating depression or anxiety, if this is true, what would you give or risk or do to be whole? It takes courage to pursue healing like that. She is an unclean, unaccompanied woman, exiled from community, forbidden in the temple. She's crossed every boundary you can imagine, risked public humiliation and profound punishment. And why? If you need healing, you seek a healer. She has done everything she can to be restored, spent every penny that she has within the system, and nothing has changed for 12 years. And at this point, she has nothing left to lose. There's no touch, no status, no money, no more children, no purpose, no social life, no temple, no access no power, nothing. And while we want to blame her isolation and her desperation on her, or at least her illness, we can not. 
It is the system itself that denies her access, that says, no, you are not worth anything. This woman and Jairus are both faithful, both courageous, both committed. They have everything in common except Jairus, by the very nature of his being, has access and power within a system that was not only built for him, but it is controlled by him too. Remember, he is the temple leader. It is his responsibility to maintain the tradition and the integrity of God's law. Let's be honest. We aren't really that offended by the woman, are we? She can take what she needs as long as it doesn't impact us or slow us down or change the way things are. Poor thing. We may even feel sorry for her. Maybe we'll even drop off some hand-me-downs, leftovers, if we have time. The thing that is so radical, it offends us, is the fact that Jesus stops in his tracks and makes Jairus wait. He could have kept going. By this world's standards, he should have. He could have rushed through the throngs of people to the temple leader's dying child. Not just any child, Jairus' child. But instead, Jesus stops. He puts the agenda on hold. He ignores the voices, even those in his own party. He forgoes the rules, the structure, the system, the policy. He challenges and contradicts the hierarchy. He levels the playing field, and he halts the pace of the status quo. Why? What could possibly be that important? She was already healed. The truth not a soundbite, not 144 characters, the whole truth. A nameless, dirty, bleeding, leftover has-been without a penny to her name, drops to her knees in fear and tells the whole truth. So yes, Karl Barth was on to something when he says, Jesus' healings are incarnational signs of God's grace and compassion, but they also reveal the divine power of God's kingdom as a foretaste of the resurrection, and boy, oh boy, we don't know what to do with this. This is justice, and we know it's going to cost somebody. It is so radical, it's offensive. Come on, Jesus, are you serious? We don't have time for the whole truth, do we, Jairus? I'd have been losing it if I were him. Hurry up, Jesus. It's going to be too late. There's not enough, Jesus. Hurry up. There's not enough time, not enough space, not enough power. I have done everything right. I asked you first. For God's sake, don't waste your power on this woman when my child does not deserve to die. Is God so inadequate? Is Our God's capacity so scarce? Is God so small that there is not enough grace for all of God's children? The people in the crowd say it's too late anyway. Don't even bother him. And certainly to lose a child 
is a tragedy God knows far too well. So again, I don't blame Jairus or his people, and neither does Jesus. But remember, Jesus is unconcerned with the cause of our condition. Jesus doesn't care how you got there. He only cares that you're suffering. Jairus is about to learn the essence of that old African-American gospel when it says, God may not come when you call, but God will be there right on time. Even his disciples don't know what to do with him. Jesus, you cannot possibly expect us to know who touched you. Look at this crowd. 2,000 kids means 4,000 parents. If we ask their names, we're going to have to deal with them all. And you know, Jesus, they all want something. Just keep moving. It isn't practical. It isn't logical. It isn't even possible, Jesus. You can't touch them all. If only they knew what we know, right? Behind every nameless woman is a story of tenacity and courage. You show me a woman without a name in the Bible, and I'm going to show you a bona fide, bodacious, firecracker, tough-as-nails risk-taker who had neither the privilege to be polite nor the time to be patient. If women are included in the narrative at all, they are often painted as pathetic or weak characters. But to be clear, Montreat, they do not want our sympathy and they do not need our pity. They want restoration and wholeness and peace. They need justice and security and love. They want the same things that we all want. They want to enjoy God and to serve God forever. According to the scholarly work of Reverend Lindsay Freeman, women in scripture account for only 1% of the narratives in all of the Bible. Of those 86 women who spoke in the Bible, only about half of them have names. The woman caught in the act of adultery, the woman at the well, the widow who quietly gives her last two coins, the sinful woman who anoints Jesus' feet, and where is Jesus in all of those stories? Right there with the women, befriending them and respecting them and empowering them and restoring them. And the authors of these stories do not give them names, but Jesus does. He calls them daughter, little sister, beloved child of God. Guess what we call the lady in our narrative today? The woman with the issue of blood. Well, guess what? We don't really like to talk about it, but most women have an issue with blood. It's part of how God created us in case we want to reproduce or have children. But back then, the chance to reproduce was the only path to value and safety within her community. And in this case, that very thing has turned against her. If her condition was the result of a difficult childbirth, which some scholars say that might have been the case, then 12 years ago, the very same year, the same time in history, the world has judged her and rewarded Jairus for the exact same thing. Remember, it's not her illness that has marginalized her. She simply has been told she is not allowed or invited or included or worthy. And so like all the others, we dismiss her too because 
it's been 12 years and she's a hopeless case. But we are so wrong. The world has judged her, but Jesus has not. And we walk past her every day. We walk past her every day through the crowds and on the streets and in our schools. Men and women and children alike without names. They're in our hallways, in our hospitals, in our retirement communities. And they're on our streets and in our shelters and on our screens and in our courts. Who are we keeping out? Who are we afraid to touch? Do we really want to know their names? Or would we rather sentimentalize them or pity them? That's so much easier, you know. Send a little money, pray from afar. That's so much easier than slowing down to hear their stories, to make room for them in our policies and in our schools and in our communities and in our churches. But if we, the church, are the body of Christ, we cannot walk past without hearing the whole truth. You tell me, you tell me who is handing out dignity and status and access and inclusion and healing for free these days. Y'all, it's so radical, it's offensive. But if it's not the church, then I'm not even sure what the church is for. Lest we forget that there is nothing free about it, Jesus suffered in order to heal the world. So Jairus and this woman alike, neither one of them could earn it or hoard it or manipulate it or control it, but they both needed it, and only one of them had to steal it. Now I know what you all might be thinking. You're wondering when I'm going to talk about politics and power. Policy, tradition, access to affordable health care, gun violence, opioid crisis, the lack of treatment facilities, maybe equitable education and zip codes or racial justice and white supremacy, perhaps incarceration and cash bail or affordable housing and living wages, or maybe gender equity and the Me Too movement. Certainly she's going to talk about the complicated issue of immigration and children who are separated from their parents. But I'm not. I'm just a polite woman telling a story about a savior who heals, a healer who reveals a compassionate and merciful God who is intimately concerned with human suffering and reveals a kingdom of hope and justice and peace where every tear is wiped away, where every nameless woman is called daughter and every suffering child is called to rise up and sit at the table to feast on the bread of life and drink from an overflowing cup of salvation. It's so radical. It's offensive. 